Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is February 15th, 2024, and it is my pleasure to have with me today, again, international legal expert in business and human rights, Tara Van Ho. Tara is a senior lecturer at the University of Essex in the UK. She is co-director of the Essex Business and Human Rights Project. And in that capacity, she advises governments, international organizations, and non-governmental organizations on the impacts of investment laws and treaties on human rights, particularly in post-conflict situations. She has a JD from Cincinnati and an LLM in international human rights law and a PhD in law both from Essex. And you can follow her on the platform formerly known as Twitter. She's at Tara Van Ho, T-A-R-A-V-A-N-H-O, and on Mastodon at, at Tara Van Ho, at B-H-R-E dot social. And I'll have links to all of that in the show notes. So Tara, thank you so much for joining me again today. Thanks, Laura. It's always a pleasure to be here with you, although I as I said before, would like this to be under better circumstances. Yes, sometimes. someday we'll have a conversation when there isn't terrible news to be discussed. Um, nice. And speaking of the last time, so before I get into the context and intro, I first want to say that Tara posted a superb thread on the topic um, that we're talking about today, again, on the platform formerly known as Twitter. She did that earlier today. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, I'm going to do some relatively brief background for folks who maybe haven't followed this issue before. It's a little esoteric or folks who could benefit from a quick refresher on how we got here. So very quickly, there is a growing movement in the United States, actually not just the United States, um, but we're focusing on the US, that seeks to delegitimize and penalize investors who consider environmental, social, and governance issues, which is shorthanded as ESG, um, when allocating their clients' money. For the Republican politicians leading this effort, but it's not just Republicans, ESG has become an all-purpose rallying cry in the partisan culture wars. For Republicans in the right wing, ESG is the new critical race theory. It's a concept nebulous enough to be made to seem offensive or evil. And there I'm quoting an LA Times article that I'll also link to in the show notes. So in short, the political right wing in America has seized on ESG as the new critical race theory or whatever woke ideology they hate the most with potentially far reaching and we would, I think Tara and I would both argue dangerous implications. Um, Israel has become a key issue and a powerful weapon in the campaign against ESG, and that's why we're here today. Officials from both parties are attacking investors, investment analysts, and data providers for carrying out global ESG assessments that subject Israel to the same legal and normative standards as other companies. These attacks are based on the assertion that such assessments, which differentiate between the state of Israel and the occupied territories and routinely raise concerns about the Israeli government's policies and practices and human rights conditions, Conditions in the occupied territories. Um, they, these assessments, they argue, would be biased against Israel and therefore are, are ipso facto anti-Semitic and a form of BDS. So for folks who want to learn more, I'm going to include in the show notes a link to um, other podcasts I did on this topic previously and prominent among them, among them will be the podcast Tara and I did a little over a year ago in December 2022. That podcast focused on exactly the same topic we're focused on today, which is the ongoing controversy surrounding Chicago-based financial services company Morningstar Inc. and its subsidiary Sustainalytics, which provide an array of investment, research, and management services. For more than two years now, Morningstar and Sustainalytics have faced a nonstop media assault led by prominent Jewish American organizations and leaders and joined by anti-ESG Republican officials accusing them of anti-Semitism and support for BDS. These accusations have been coupled with threats of punitive action in multiple U.S. states, with critics pointing to anti-BDS laws and the possibility of new legislation. In response, Morningstar has bent over backwards, going on two years now, trying to placate its attackers with new policies designed to ensure Israeli non-accountability. And with every action in response to placate its attackers, Morningstar has not only failed to halt the campaign against it, but has further energized its attackers. In December 2022, we examined in depth what at the time was the most recent Morningstar announcement with respect to how it would change its operations to placate pro-Israel critics. Today, we're coming together again because Morningstar recently released a new report and recommendations by, quote, independent experts. And if you're listening to this, I'm doing air quotes around independent experts. Um, and those this report takes the previous announcement even further. 
And lastly, before we go in, because, you know, people are always like, well, it's conspiracy theory. You're saying they're bending over backwards or listening to the Jewish groups. OK, so just to make clear what I mean when I say that in this process, Morningstar has bent over backwards to try to placate its Israel focused critics. I'm going to read from the new Morningstar report by the independent experts, air quotes, which has a section entitled background. That section opens as follows. Quote, Morningstar committed in October 2021 to take a series of specific actions designed to address concerns of anti-Israel bias in Sustainalytics ESG research. Among these commitments, Morningstar undertook to seek advice regarding its assumptions, sources, and internal use of language from independent recognized experts, blah, 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 blah. These commitments flowed from Morningstar's sustained engagement with representatives of the Jewish Federations of North America, the ADL, the American Jewish Committee, JLENS, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and the the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights under law. Um, so not conspiracy theory to say that there was a concerted effort by these groups who are focused first and foremost on Israel. Okay, so now I'm going to let you talk, Tara. Let's dig, let's dig in. I want to first ask you a background question and just can, can you remind people why we should care about Morningstar. <laughs> Who is Morningstar <laughs> and, and what role does it play? And, and, and what are the basic principles and parameters that should in theory guide Morningstar in this role that they play in the ESG sector? So Morningstar is a company that provides other institutional investors with guidance around what we know as ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors. Within that, the S now has real content in the framework of business and human rights, which is the field that I work in. Um, when we talk about what they're doing, what they're doing is telling other institutional investors, these are the risks that you face, right? These are the financial risks. These are also the risks that your investees pose to other business or to other rights holders. For institutional investors who bring their values with their money, which are a lot, right? You're, you're talking about your pension funds, you're talking about your faith-based investment organizations. You're also talking about people like me and my mom, when we're talking to financial planners right now, talking through, you know, we don't want our money to go to certain types of products. So what Morningstar does is tell these investors, this is where your risks are. The, this, this is what this company is doing. This is, you know, how the company is operating. And these are the factors that we're concerned about. When it's doing that work, Morningstar has its own business and human rights responsibilities, its institutional investors have their business and human rights responsibilities, and the companies that are evaluating have their business and human rights responsibilities. So there's, there's three sets of business and human rights responsibilities going on at the same time. When we talk about those responsibilities, we start with what's known as a UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. That's a, that's a set of principles that was adopted unanimously in 2012 by the UN Human Rights Council. It's been universally endorsed. Um, the only real criticism of the guiding principles is that they don't go far enough. So you have a lot of states like Ecuador and South Africa who have said it needs to go further. Um, but there's no criticism that it's that it's too hard. Um, the guiding principles say that all businesses have a responsibility to respect all human rights at all times in all contexts, and that includes in conflict-affected areas. Within conflict-affected areas, they have an even greater risk. So there's a greater risk that businesses could be complicit or that they could cause, contribute, or be directly linked to a variety of human rights harms, that the nature of the conflict on the ground is such that we are often talking about severe gross violations of human rights, humanitarian law, torture, arbitrary detention, extrajudicial killings, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and of course, genocide. With that, and with the way in which conflicts evolve quickly, often changing uh, the, compl the, the complexity of the number of parties that can be involved, the dynamics between those parties, businesses need to pay greater attention to how they're operating on the ground, to their relationship with all the various actors on the ground, including the state, and also what those impacts are, both real impacts, but also speculative impacts. Where are the risks likely to come in the future? How are you likely to harm businesses in the future? And as an ESG evaluator and analyst, Morningstar is supposed to apply this framework to the companies it's evaluating and for its work to be complete, for it to be meeting its own human rights responsibility, it needs to be ensuring that it's 
facilitating greater understanding of business and human rights. So it needs to be making sure that it's advice aligns with that. And then the clients that rely on Morningstar, these institutional investors, are supposed to be looking at this guidance and going further, right? So they're, they're, they start with the guidance and then they ask more questions to make their own evaluation. Every business's responsibility to respect human rights is independent of all the other actors. So Morningstar's responsibility is independent of both its clients and of the companies that it's evaluating. It's also independent of any state actors. So that's the framework that we're talking about here. That That's really helpful. And I guess I, I just want to just make really clear to people and make sure I understand this. When you talk about the obligations that are under national law, the obligations of Morningstar, the obligations of clients, Morningstar basically here is an is simply an advice provider, an insight and advice provider, and a trusted insight and advice provider, where its clients are companies that want good advice about what their potential risks are. This is not a matter of a company that comes up with these reports and then goes out and tries to force them down the throats of people and say, this is what you should do. This is basically they're doing research for clients who are coming with the framing of, we want to do right by these yes. countries. We want to do right by business and human rights, correct? That's exactly right. Okay. So thanks for that background. Um, so really quick, this is all sort of background, but as I noted in my intro, <laughs> long intro, so this latest Morningstar bombshell, which we're talking about today, did not come out of nowhere. I want you to talk a little bit about what preceded it, what led to it, um, you know, what this means when you put it up in, with respect to the previous report. And I don't know if you feel comfortable, if you want to talk a little bit about the so-called independence of the alleged experts who are brought in to write it. Um, given the degree to which their report basically seems to be designed to justify and strengthen the previous report, which was not written by independent experts. Right. So you gave a really good background to the fact that this is a response to concerns raised by a, a small number of very specific politically oriented, um, some religious, but but more generally all are politically oriented organizations in the U.S., who said they were concerned that labeling Israel and Palestine as conflict-affected areas or the territory, you know, um, Israeli companies operating in occupied West Bank as being companies operating in occupied territories, uh, that all of that creates an anti-Israel bias. We talked in the last um, podcast about how that there's no real basis for that. Occupied territories is a legal term. Certain territories within Palestine are legally occupied by Israel. And that is a designation that matters because it carries with it this conflict-affected nature. It, it is one of the ways in which a area is conflict-affected. It carries with it this heightened risk of human rights risks um, of severe violations, of gross violations of human rights. Um, and, but it also carries with it some, some moral condemnation. Um, and it, it frames sort of the legitimacy of Palestinian existence within Palestine. The six organizations in the US have, um, have said that this evidence is designating this, these areas as inherently risky, designating companies operating in Israel as inherently risky um, for human rights, not for everything, but for human rights, is showing some sort of anti-Israel bias. Morningstar adopted a series of commitments, which included that they would not inherently assume that there are heightened risks associated with businesses operating in areas of, of occupation within Israel and Palestine. Um, that certain types of technology or certain types of services would not be considered inherently risky when provided to the state of Israel. Um, and now they appointed these two independent experts. Um, and I, I also use air quotes when I talk about experts for reasons that we'll get into in a second. These two independent experts to evaluate and facilitate means to implement these promises that Morningstar already made. Now, in our last podcast, we talked about how Morningstar, those promises have no foundation in business and human rights. If, if ESG ratings analysis 
was a professional body with with sort of um with with a board certification or something, this would be professional malfeasance. What Morningstar said then and what Morningstar is saying now is so beyond the bounds of what's accepted within this industry and so beyond the bounds of business and human rights generally that it's that it's incompetent. Um, the experts themselves, the reason that I say that they that experts needs to be in air quotes is that um, individually these two have expertise, but they don't have expertise in business and human rights. One of them is an ambassador who has expertise in diplomacy, international relations. One of them has expertise in national security and counterterrorism. Neither of them have expertise in business and human rights. And that is really apparent in the report. They were appointed, however, because, as I said in our last podcast, Morningstar was going to have a really difficult time finding any credible business and human rights expert who would be willing to operate within the constraints that Morningstar set for these experts because it's so out of line with the UN guiding principles and it's so out of line with the expectations of industry. And Morningstar proved me right. They found two people who are willing to write a report in an area that they really shouldn't be commenting on. Um, I, I rather unkindly in the Twitter uh, thread, but also somewhat accurately said that these two men are cosplaying experts in my field. And I find it problematic. Um, and, and I stand by that assertion. The, this is not a report of expertise. This is a report of people pleasing. And that's an issue. Sorry, I, I'm smiling because I'm picturing them wearing houndstooth jackets and <laughs> you in this space. And it, for a moment, it, it offered a moment of levity. Um, you know, I, listening to you, and we're going to get into this more, there's something just absolutely surreal about the framing, which says, we're going to demand that you that you say that you shouldn't assume that there's anything risky on human rights with occupied territories, notwithstanding the well-documented human rights abuses and threats across the occupied territories. And these are these are these are abuses and threats that have been documented by Israeli human rights organizations for decades, not just international human rights organizations. It isn't yes. like there's it, it, it's a little bit like saying, well, we shouldn't say that there's a risk of weeds growing in this area because we don't want to devalue the, this lawn when everyone can see there's weeds everywhere. <laughs> like, it's, yes, it's surreal. Yeah. It is. It would be like saying there aren't inherent human rights risks in operating in Afghanistan. There aren't inherent human rights risks operating in Russia or facilitating Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. I mean, you, you can make that argument if you want to, but I'm going to laugh at you and I'm not going to laugh kindly. Um, it, it, there's, it, it's the level of naivety that is required to make this assertion. And I'm going to be kind and assume that it's naivety. Um, I actually, I, I don't assume that, but I'm going to be kind and assert that the level of naivety that is required to make that assertion is so significant that it becomes dangerous, right? You, This is not a field for the lighthearted. This is not a field for the naive people who think that human rights is about puppy dogs and rainbows. This field is a field that is inherently dangerous, inherently complex. It has its own terms of art. It has its own knowledge base and, and history behind it that has facilitated the development of actual legal standards in this area. And um, and this report carries none of that knowledge. It carries none of that gravity. It carries none of that significance or seriousness. And I just find it, um, yeah, we're going to go with naive because yeah. if I actually... I, I will say, as someone who works on Israel-Palestine, the, the denial of reality part and the going back to what we were yeah. talking about earlier, that this is about people who are actively looking for good objective advice. It's a little yes. bit like when people said that the the settlement database at the UN was intrinsically anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. And, and I said to them, well, is it okay when the settlers have websites with, they say where all the settlements are and what they sell because they see that as a selling point, but somehow if the UN puts the same one up because some people don't want to buy settlement goods, that's crossing a line. And effectively what they're saying is if we suspect you of not wanting to support Israel in what it's doing, we're going to say you're not allowed to know. Knowledge itself is anti-Semitic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, can we stick on this for a, a moment? Because I want to talk about some of the framing within the report, because it talks about anti-Israel bias. Um, the concern about anti-Israel bias from a legal, moral perspective is actually a concern about 
anti-Semitism, right? So if you hold Israel to a higher standard than you're holding other states to, it is anti-Semitic. It is driven by this othering of Israel. And anti-Semitism is a real problem within the world globally. It is oftentimes a problem within the pro-Palestine movement. We need to grapple with that and we need to be honest about it. But not all of the criticism that Israel endures and not all of the focus that Israel endures is the result of anti-Semitic feelings and sentiments. There is this thing within human rights, and I'm going to be upfront about it to the audience. The reality of human rights, lawyers, academic activists, is if you if you try, for the most part, we are a forgiving bunch. Once we feel that that trying is no longer in good faith, once we feel that you've betrayed us once, we tend to be a pretty vindictive bunch. I tend to be a pretty, and I realized this with Morningstar, and I realized that when I was making the analogy to, to sort of some operations at Shell and the history around Shell in, Niger in Nigeria, like I am vindictive with companies. Like if you show yourself to operate in bad faith, if you are consistently hypocritical, if you promise me that you're going to try hard and then you go and repeat the exact same mistakes, I am going to seek out and I'm going to monitor you strictly. And I'm going to pay attention to every one of your faults. And I'm not alone. There are lawyers who whose livelihood is really built around their vindictiveness against Shell for how it treated Nigerians. There are lawyers who monitor Rio Tinto extensively. And when it comes to Israel, the reality is I don't know a single human rights defender who has gone to Israel and Palestine as a human rights defender and has spent any significant amount of time there that hasn't faced degradation and humiliation, that hasn't left there really scarred by the, by the disconnect between the promise of democracy that Israel claims to, to give and the reality on the ground for Palestinians that we, that we monitor. Right. So, you know, I was effectively strip searched at Ben Gurion when I was leaving one time. I had I have never felt less safe as a human rights defender in all of my work, regardless of conflict affected areas that I go to, high poverty rates. I've never felt less safe than I did when I was living in Palestine. That's significant. And it means that you will see entire organizations dedicated to monitoring Israel. That in and of itself doesn't make it anti-Semitic. The question is, what's underpinning that? Where is that sort of um, that vigilance coming from? And what is it tied to? And what standard is it applying? And for it to be anti-Semitic, the standard that you're looking for is, are you holding the state to a different standard than you would to other states? Now, for me, Israel and Palestine is one of several areas that I pay attention to, right? We, we've talked the the Uyghurs in China and the Rohingya in Myanmar, Russia and Ukraine, Colombia, uh, Sudan. There, my, my sort of global scope of vengeance is broad. Um, but Israel is consistently in that list, not because I was degraded and humiliated, but because that, that disconnect between the promise and the reality on the ground is significant. It's one that most Americans who travel there don't see. I have family members who have gone on Holy Land pilgrimage. Um, I was just speaking to, to uh, uh, family friends who went on a Holy Land pilgrimage. They don't spend enough time in Palestine to actually see the real treatment of Palestinians on the ground. And so if you go into that situation and you think you bought any of the promises that Israel made before you get in there, and you see the reality in the situation, the reality on the ground, the, the disconnect is so significant that it can sort of, it, it's it's almost engrossing, right? Like you, you do get obsessed with the fact that people don't understand this reality. You do get obsessed with the fact that actually we need accountability and justice. And so these, the existence of these organizations, the existence of these NGOs who monitor Israel strictly, isn't in and of itself necessarily anti-Semitic. We have those same organizations in other states for the exact same reason, right? There are organizations that are that are working with vigilance against Russia for its occupation of Ukraine. We have organizations that are fully dedicated to the situation of the Rohingya. We have organizations fully dedicated to the situation of the, of the Uyghur. 
And so we need Morningstar needs to do a better job of talking about what is anti, what is acceptable anti-Israel focus and what is unacceptable anti-Semitic bias. And they don't do that. They don't do that in any of the reports to date. So sorry, yeah. that was a very long. No, that, that, rant, was, very, that was very powerful. A, a couple of things I would just remark on just in addition. I mean, one of the things I, I've had people say to me, you know, for years, all anybody does, they focus on Israel, Israel. And I say, well, this conflict has been going on. Israel has maintained what was supposed to be a temporary occupation for longer than I've been alive. And the situation on the ground for the people under occupation has gotten systematically worse for the yes. entire time I've been alive. So this is not a, a something where you go in and out because things get better and worse. It's been consistently worse. The power asymmetry has has always been bad, and the 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 what that means on the ground has gotten worse. I would also say, and you talk about the importance of holding not holding Israel to a different standard. I mean, I would argue, and I think we'll get into this with the recommendations mm -hmm. a little bit. It's not as as I see it. The defenders of 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 what the defenders of Israeli impunity, let's say it's not defenders of Israel, it's defenders of Israeli impunity are not arguing that Israel has to be held to the same standard. They're arguing it cannot be held to the same standard. Yes. They're arguing it must be held to a different and lower standard. Um, and that's, that's exactly sort right. of at the heart of the, the Morningstar problem. Um, so let's get into it. I was going to ask you if you wanted, in your thread this morning, you actually talked about some of the things they got right in this report. I don't know if you feel like it's important to take a second to give some credit, and then we can get to the meat of this, or we can skip over and people can read your thread. No, I think I think it's legitimate to very briefly note that, as I said, both men have expertise. It's not in the field of business and human rights. You can see that in the report. They get the internal nature of international humanitarian law and the internal nature nature of the laws of armed or laws of occupation right. Like it's not universally, not everybody would agree with them, but they're they're not wildly off base. Um, they also make an important recommendation, which I think is a good recommendation, which is that they should have a relevant legal expert on the oversight committees. Of course, I, like. I'm actually surprised by that recommendation because it suggests Morningstar hasn't in the past had a legal advisor on their oversight committees, which is disturbing. So um, that is an important recommendation and one that I agree with. That's that's kind of the limit of what they get right. Okay, and it's it's not a short report, so that's not much. All right, so now we're going to zoom in on what's so problematic, and I want to focus in on four of the key recommendations in the report, um, all of which in my mind, should be considered radical and controversial. Um, so I'm going to go through them one by one. And in each one, I'm going to, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read out to you my short version of it. And I want you to comment on it and you can comment on it any way you want. Um, so the first recommendation is don't identify and tag companies operating in occupied territories or disputed regions. Go. So if the recommendation were to have been tag companies operating in occupied territories or disputed regions as conflict affected, I would be fine with this recommendation and it would align with the UNGPs. As it is, the argument is there is no need to have a geographic designation because geography doesn't matter in your assessment of a business's human rights compliance. That is not true. Um, under the UN guiding principles, there is an inherent recognition that businesses operating in conflict affected areas carry that inherent heightened risk and they have a responsibility to do what we call heightened human rights due diligence. So normally businesses have to assess their risks that they are posing to other people on the ground, develop a plan of action for mitigating those risks, remedy, sorry, stop any harms that they are causing or contributing to. And we're gonna come back to that terminology in a little bit. They need to use their leverage in their business relationships where they are directly linked to a harm to affect change in the conduct of their business partners they need to remediate any harms that have occurred that they caused or contributed to, and they need to report transparently. In their human rights due diligence, in, their, in all of this process, they are supposed to be consulting stakeholders who are affected by the business's operations. When we talk about heightened human rights due diligence or enhanced human rights due diligence in conflict-affected areas, by the way, I believe that term comes up only once in the totality of the Morningstar report. I might be wrong, it might come up twice, but we're not talking about an extensive engagement with this concept. With enhanced human rights due diligence, you are looking at all of that much more frequently and much more deeply, but you also 
have to look at the conflict dynamics and you're supposed to be developing a conflict sensitive approach. And that's because, and this is gonna come up later when we talk about some of the other recommendations, in a conflict affected territory, oftentimes you will have widespread or systematic or structural violations of human rights and humanitarian law that have real consequences for people on the ground, but drawing the causal link from any one particular action to that is difficult. So you can see in, in Gaza right now with the, the constant bombing of the hospitals, with the pushing people into Rafah and then attacking in Rafah, what you're seeing there is not necessarily Israel took step A and step A led to step B and that had consequence C. And therefore, if a business intervenes in A or B, it's responsible for C. What you actually have is a confluence of realities of, of some things that are probably lawful and many things that are probably unlawful coming together to create a crisis that makes it unsustainable for anyone within, within Gaza. Understanding that conflict sensitivity, understanding how your relationship to a party can be perfectly lawful, but can also facilitate really harmful conduct. So you supply a state with uh, surveillance equipment, and it uses that surveillance equipment to protect an unlawful settlement. And that unlawful, that protection of the unlawful settlement leads to heightened uh, extrajudicial killings, um, or torture or arbitrary detention or the forceful displacement of people on the land. All of that needs to be part of your assessment, even though it might technically be lawful for the state to engage in that. You need to understand how you're affecting the conflict on the ground, how you're affecting those dynamics. That's the expectation. And it's the ex expectation of every business in every conflict and occupied territory in the world. Israel is not alone in being an occupying power. It is also not the only occupying power where there are inherently high risks or, or significant histories of violence and, and human rights abuses. Morocco and Western Sahara is right now doing all that it can to catch up to Israel in terms of the severity of the violations. That's, that's a significant issue. It needs to be tagged. You need as an institutional investor to know which of your businesses are operating in conflict affected areas because that gives you the first starting point to all the further inquiries. And it is geographic. It's also a legal term. And those geographic and legal terms delineate the risk. That is the factor that is a risk factor for businesses, both in terms of going into the territory for its own financial stability, and then also in terms of its long-term impact on the ground. And the idea that you can sort of look at Israel, this, this report, this approach to the issue of occupation by Morningstar, which predates the most recent escalation in, in Gaza um, and in the West Bank, that it was laughable two years ago when we first started having this conversation. Now, it is surreal to suggest that businesses didn't need to be paying greater attention to their risks, both on the ground to other people or their financial risk to the company themselves of operating within Israel or within the occupied Palestinian territories. It's so far removed from any sense of reality that I can't understand the foundation behind it other than they don't like the term occupation because they find it, it, it hurts people's feelings. And yeah. I'm so sorry that it hurt your feelings. So I, I, I would actually argue that they're not they don't want the term because they Israel has wants to claim the West Bank and yes. all part of Gaza. I do want to note that that recommendation in the report is not Israel Gaza specific. So no. under this recommendation, Morningstar would, for instance, not labeled Crimea as occupied Russian territory. I mean, this is about basically pulling the wool over the eyes of businesses around the world in yeah. a way that quite politicized um, to to effectively enable um, actors on the ground to to do what they want. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. quite extraordinary in terms of denying reality. It is because they talk about it in terms of there's nothing specific about the geographic designation, but that's not true. If you are going into a West Bank settlement or you are going into 
property in Crimea that's been forcibly displaced from, from Ukrainians, or you are going into property in South Ossetia or, or Abkhazia, or you are going into Transnistria or Northern Cyprus, like all of those places where you have the property has been taken by the state or by the local population. The business that is operating in there only has security as long as that particular area is controlled by the occupying power. As soon as there is a shift of any nature, that business's property interests and value becomes extraordinarily fragile extraordinarily quickly. Additionally, operating in these situations we have seen for, for decades now, operating in these situations carries the fact that after, after there is a transition or after peace is established, you have a variety of mechanisms from truth commissions to criminal investigations to domestic reparations programs that are aimed at redressing the wrongful conduct of the past. They have looked at corporations, they have held corporations and businesses responsible. There have been taxations or voluntary contributions that have been sought from businesses to address the fact that they were complicit in human rights violations. So this idea that there's not a financial risk to the companies that this is just about politics or just about human rights or, or, or fluffy concerns, and I'm gonna say human rights are not fluffy concerns, but people tend to pretend that they are. In those circumstances, there's a real financial risk to the institutional investors that are relying on Morningstar's analysis because they are not adequately and appropriately identifying the actual risk to the companies that they're investing in. Yeah, I find myself as I'm listening to you thinking about growing up all of the um, many of the same organizations that are pushing Morningstar, the same ones who are pushing for justice for um, maybe my ancestors in Europe who lost property and businesses in yes. World War II, um, which were then maybe taken over and run by other people for profit and looking for reparations and returns of things. Um, so yeah. Just to, to stay on that for a second, think about it. It was 40 years from the end of World War II until the Swiss banks started repairing and providing reparations for it, their complicity. There were ongoing claims around Japan. There were ongoing claims around uh, complicity with the Nazis for decades afterwards. To suggest that you're not going to tag that because you don't think that it's relevant, that it doesn't relate to a financial risk to business. Again, the nice the nice assumption is that it's extraordinarily naive. And, and to implicitly deny the legitimacy of such claims. Yes. All right, we're going to have to go faster because this is- yeah, I'm sorry, gonna, I'm sorry. I don't want to keep you too long and this is really interesting. I'm going to read you actually the next two together. Um, don't rely on NGO reports to identify risks until there's demonstrable human violation. So basically, until something horrible happens, you can't warn that it might happen. And focus only on specified, not speculative human rights risks. So you can't actually warn broadly. It has to be like, this guy might lose a toe, not like somebody might get hurt. So yeah. can you talk about those? Um, completely out of touch with the UN guiding principles. This is not surprising. The report doesn't actually use the UN guiding principles. <laughs> Repeatedly, it uses what's known as the UN Global Compact. The UN Global Compact has no legal standing at all. It's a voluntary commitment that businesses can do and often do for PR purposes. Uh, the UN guiding principles say you are supposed to identify real and actual and potential risks. Sorry, so actual and potential risks to human rights. You need to understand that because you are supposed to be taking proactive steps to prevent the realization of those harms coming to account. When you say only focus on demonstrable human rights violations, only focus on specified, not speculative human rights risks, what you are saying is don't take proactive actions, just remedy the harm later. Completely out of touch with the UN guiding principles and deeply problematic. The advice also to, to not rely on NGO reports is also problematic. That is actually supposed to be the first step in any human rights due diligence, is sort of this broad base information gathering from a wide variety of different sources. You then can, you can code and say, this is based off of NGO reports. You can take it into account. You should then dig deeper. And in that digging deeper from Morningstar, if Morningstar is doing its human rights responsibilities, it then contacts the business, it gathers more information, and it brings all of that information together. Businesses should have a right of reply within Morningstar's analysis. And if they do, that information should help inform, inform the analysis and the risk assessment. And so this idea that you shouldn't rely on the, on the NGO reports 
um, actually contradicts the UN guiding principles uh, and it's out of line with best practice in the field. And just for those who weren't on our last podcast, I think it's important to recognize the reason that behind this recommendation regarding NGOs is that there are a couple of NGOs, one in particular, that do monitor Israeli companies, international companies violating Palestinian human rights. So effectively, in order to make sure that those recommendations are ignored and discredited and delegitimized, we are now as a whole delegitimizing and discrediting the entire NGO sector worldwide, sort of like when defenders of Israeli impunity say that all of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch are evil because they had a report that criticized Israel. So they can't be taken seriously on anything in the world. Yeah, it's particularly dangerous for a company like Morningstar that doesn't have operations on the ground in places like Israel and Palestine. It For it to be meeting its human rights responsibilities, it actually needs to be relying on the NGO reports that are coming from local organizations. So you should be listening to Betzalem. You should be listening to Al-Haq. The failure to do so, yes, and who profits. The failure to do so, it's out of line. Um, It's professional incompetence. Um, right. So the, yeah. the last one, and then we're going to get to I have one more, maybe mm-hmm. two more questions. We're going way long. Um, the last recommendation is focus only on activities that, quote, deliberately facilitate or, quote, provide direct assistance to specific violations of human rights. That sounds a little bit about the speculative versus versus actual. It's actually even worse than that. So what this is talking about is um, what's under international criminal law known as complicity in, in international criminal law. Um, and they're pulling this language that kind of comes from that background and from the UN Global Compact, again, a relevant document. Um, I mean, it's a nice document, but it's irrelevant for this. Um, and, and international criminal law to say, focus on complicity only. That advice is was outdated in 2012. Like we are talking about advice that has no foundation in this field for the last 12 years, because we don't talk about complicity in business and human rights anymore. That's only a narrow subset of the concerns that we need to focus on. The broader subset are these cause, contribute, and directly linked to. And I don't want to get into the specifics of what that means. I have an article. I'll share it with you. Um, People can contact me if they want access to it um, and they can't get it otherwise. But, But that that terminology is really narrowing the scope of considerations and the kinds of responsibility businesses have in a way that is out of line with the field of business and human rights. It really has no basis in ESG monitoring um, and it's deeply problematic. Okay. So we have, I have a few more questions. So I'm going to just suggest to our listeners that this might be a good place to pause, get a drink, stop in the restroom, you know, yes. take, take a quick listeners. And, and come back. Um, because here we're going to go back into some broader analysis. I actually, I'm going to do the last three questions. So we're going to probably run about 15 minutes over an hour, which I really try not to do, but you Sorry. are worth it. Cause I want to hear what you have to say. So I want to now, so we've listened to your discussion of the recommendations, blah, 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 all that important stuff. So let's now take a step back and relate this all more to the moment we're in. This new Morningstar report came out, amazingly, just after the International Court of Justice concluded in the context of the case brought by South Africa that it is plausible that Israel is currently committing genocide in Gaza. You mentioned this before, but I want you just to take a moment. What what does this timing say about the fundamental thinking behind this report? They knew when they released it that this is the timing, right? And about its recommendations. And, and what do these recommendations mean with respect to what Morningstar would be telling people about what's happening in Gaza now, right? So you've got these recommendations. There's literally, according to the ICJ, a plausible case of genocide is happening now. So if I'm a company and I come to Morningstar and I say, hey, I heard about this Israeli company. It turns out they're working in a place called Rafa, theoretically. So what do you say? So first of all, you you can't have a plausible claim of genocide occurring without having heightened human rights risks for every company that is in the area of that, right? So so that's an insane position that has, again, has no basis in the law. It has no basis in the field of business and human rights. It's completely wildly out of touch. I actually um, suspect if if the human rights experts in Morningstar, and I have to say there, there are these external experts that they've hired for this review process, 
are not the same people as their internal human rights experts at Morningstar. And there are respected human rights experts in Morningstar who I know know what the UN guiding principles are. I know they would know to start there and not at the UN Global Compact. I know they know to use the language cause contribute and directly links to not complicity. Those experts, if they saw this report before it was released, probably said, dear God, please don't release this at a time when people will be paying attention to it. So the timing is actually in Morningstar's favor because most of us were focused on that decision, right? And we're, we're going back to the ICJ shortly. Um, South Africa has asked the ICJ for new preliminary measures or to review their preliminary measures or provisional measures because of the new and in, increased um, exercises in Rafa. Um, we're at the ICJ next week as well for the advisory opinion on Israel that was requested by the UN General Assembly. So, so there's two cases at the ICJ going on simultaneously. Around the time that this report was released was also when you saw this great focus by Israel and, and its allies, the US, Australia, Canada, around UNRWA and, and the fact that um, I think it's what, 11, uh, mem 11 employees of the UN Relief and Works Agency that operates in Gaza uh, were found to have a relationship with Hamas out of- Or alleged. alleged. Yes, we're alleged to. Uh, we're accused of that by Israel out of, I think it's 13,000 employees in Gaza. So, so less than 1%, but it was, it was the focus for a week. Um, and then you have this report that is deeply problematic. That's coming in under the radar. And I think they were hoping wouldn't get any attention. And in fairness, they didn't get a lot of attention for the first two or three weeks. Uh, and I think they're going to, they're, they're about to realize how, um, how dumb that was. Well, we're going to do our part to try to bring some more attention to it. That's what we're doing here today. So I'm going to ask you maybe to go to, to repeat some of the things you already said in a different context. So I, I want to, as we get to the end, I want to ask you about your overarching big conclusions, capital letter, big, big, big capital C conclusions. First, in terms of what this report means for Morningstar and its work and its role in the sector. And I'm actually going to read back to you something you tweeted in that amazing thread in 2022 about the previous report you wrote. The policy changes from Morningstar Inc. show such a lack of competence in business and human rights, international law and human rights standards, as to raise questions about the company's basic competence to do ESG research. Um, so you want to expand on that for a second? Yeah. As I said, this isn't a field for the faint of heart, and it's not a field that's appropriate for naivety. Naivety in this field and playing politics in this field gets people killed. It just does. And it gets companies complicit in human rights responsibilities. We've seen that in recent years, not just in Israel and Palestine, but also in other situations. You know, the French cement company Lafarge is facing criminal prosecution in France. It's already faced criminal prosecution in the U.S. where, where it reached a settlement with the U.S. government because it thought that it could just pay ISIS to continue to allow it to enter ISIS territory regularly to get to its cement manufacturing uh, plant. It did that because it was prioritizing profit over, over its human rights responsibilities. Um, when you have that kind of gravity, you need to have people who are really focused on the nuance and on, on the realities on the ground who understand this field really well. A lot of times what we're seeing now are people who have a background in some other area of public international law or some other area of international human rights law who think, oh, I can just easily fly into business and human rights and apply what I know. I don't have to learn anything new. And that's not true. This is an extraordinarily complex field of law. Its history goes much further back than the UN guiding principles. It brings together domestic and international frameworks it brings together criminal as well as civil, as well as company law and securities law. You need to know a lot in a lot of depth to just be basically functioning and not getting people killed in this field. To do it well, you need to know even more and you need to be even more rigorous. This report doesn't do any of that. And it's following a series of decisions by Morningstar that don't treat this field with the seriousness that it needs to be treated with. And in doing so, they are putting institutional investors at risk. They are putting the companies that, that are relying on their guidance at risk. 
But more importantly, they're putting people on the ground at risk because you're not seeing the changes in operations and practices that are needed to protect human rights seriously. And that's a problem. It's a problem for Morningstar. It is a much bigger problem for the field because it evidences that you have these people who are going in as advisors, as I said, cosplaying experts in this area, um, going in and, and really doing harm in a field that is, is based on preventing harm. And until we can start regulating these agencies the same way that we regulate financial ratings agencies and financial services advisors, until we start doing that, we really have to start holding ourselves accountable at a higher rate. And Morningstar is not doing that. It, it's in, in doing in practicing in this way, um, it undermines the real good work that is being done by institutional investors to secure good in the world. And that's, I, I, I personally now find what Morningstar is doing to be insulting. Um, so when I talk about companies I'm vengeful against, Morningstar is on my list. So you actually already answered my second part, which is the impact on on the broader sector. I guess what, and maybe, I mean, I think that in some ways you're you're more gentle in talking about this than I would be because what what you didn't mention is the is the deliberateness of this, which is what I find so galling. Yeah. Um, it, it does not seem to me that what Morningstar is doing today is a reflection of in, of incompetence or lack of expertise. It appears that they basically took what was a pretty good operation. Doesn't mean it couldn't have been fixed. Doesn't mean it didn't have problems, could have been improved. But they took what was a pretty good operation doing ESG monitoring, and they've now gutted it in order to make sure that Israel is absolved of any kind of accountability. And they yeah. did it under pressure and they've allowed the sector in that way or, or paved the way for a politicizing of the whole sector. If yeah. I am Russia and I see what's happened here, I'm going to yell bloody murder if you try to say anything about what I'm doing in, in Ukraine yeah. you know, or the Chinese um, or anybody else, you know? Yeah. And we have seen that, right? So, so that's a really important point. We have seen that. Austria put pressure on the Ukraine National Agency again on, on the prevention of corruption to remove one of its banks from the Ukrainian list of international sponsors of war. And it temporarily worked. They conditioned international assistance on the removal of the bank from that list. We have seen um, an uh, agency in Europe, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now, um, say that Volkswagen was able to do human rights due diligence and was uh, Uyghur labor free in China. And you cannot with any seriousness make that claim about any manufacturing company operating in anything close to Xinjiang. And in most of China, you have to recognize that there is probably still an ongoing risk because Volkswagen can't control that the way that you need to, to be able to make those kinds of claims. So you are seeing this politicalization and it is starting with this kind of pressure in the United States to, to radically change. And, and you are, have done some really important work on sort of showing that link between this anti-ESG narrative and, and sort of the history of anti-BDS legislation in the US that is aimed at shielding and preventing people from, from really holding Israel accountable for its human rights and humanitarian law violations. I think the reason that I am slightly softer on Morningstar um, is not because I don't agree with you. I do. I think I think that there is a dismantling of an important set of products. Um, I think the leadership at Morningstar doesn't realize that it's going down that route. I I don't believe that they understand what they're do the harm that they're doing to their own company. Um, I think if they did, they would have to stop because they have fiduciary responsibilities. Um, I think also that there are, as I said good human rights experts within Morningstar who were doing accurate work before all of this came to fruition and who um, I know wouldn't have allowed for this if, if they actually had the capacity to stop a report like this from going out, to edit it, to inform it, the report would be a thousand times better than it is. Like at least the technicalities of business and human rights would be accurate. Um, so it's in that sense of where I think that it's incompetence. I also think, again, you have two men here who 
parachuted in. Um, at least one of them, from what I understand, um, has some some problematic views around Israel and Palestine that predate all of this. Um, but you have these two men who parachuted in and and in that way that men of a certain age can be where they think they know everything and therefore they don't have to learn anything. I think there's incompetence there. Perhaps it's deliberate incompetence. But I think I think there's also that naivety of, oh, I'm brilliant. I must be okay in this without I, I realizing feel, I feel that like everything. You're kinder than me. When I read this latest report, it read to me like someone gave them the previous Morningstar report and said, you're coming in as outside experts to justify and strengthen everything that's report. It wasn't yeah, an yeah. examination of it in any serious way. No, I, I think that you're probably right in that. <laughs> I do All think right. you're probably right. So I want to ask you one last question here. I want to quote you. I want to quote you to you again and bringing this back to Palestine. So um, with respect to the 2022 Morningstar report in your epic Twitter thread, you said, quote, Morningstar Inc. has embedded a racist anti-Palestinian approach into its ESG research in an effort to combat concerns about another form of racism, anti-Semitism. This is what we were talking about earlier. You cannot combat racism and human rights violations by embracing a different type of racism and human rights violations. And if your ability to assess and respect Israeli rights requires ignoring and abusing Palestinian rights, you again demonstrate professional incompetence. So as the closing question, I want to ask you to reflect on that comment, if you still agree with it, if you want to you know, say anything else on that. I do still agree with it. Um, the reality is anti-Semitism, as I said before, is a serious and grave risk globally, nationally, regionally. It is a serious risk throughout all of our society the same way any form of racism is. But equally true is that anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian racism is also a real risk. There has been a serious dehumanization and subjugation of Palestinian lives for decades. Uh, we have seen that now in this in this ICJ finding of a plausible case of genocide, to get to a point where you have a plausible case of genocide is to get to a point where, where people have been so fundamentally dehumanized that it is acceptable to treat them as animals and not as other human beings. And we've heard language on that. And that language was repeated at the ICJ. There's a reason that that finding was what it was. Um, and to then take that framework and to embed it in guidance that will impact economic decisions by people who don't want to be complicit in war crimes, who don't want to facilitate that, who want to be conscientious of where their money is going. I find that really disingenuous. I find it um, dangerous. I find that it lacks respect for the fiduciary relationship that an organization like Morningstar is supposed to have for its clients is also inherently racist. You are seeing rules being developed to shield Israel from criticism and from the consequences of its own actions. As a, as a result, it's being held to a lower standard than other states are being held to. I find the more I reflect on that reality, it's not just that it's anti, it's not just that it's racist against uh, Palestinians, but it's also fundamentally racist against Jews and against Israel itself, because what it says is you aren't capable of meeting international standards of human rights and humanitarian law violations. You There's something inherently broken about you as a state that means you can't do this. And for me, that's racist. It's racist if it's being said about Israel. It's racist when it's being said about Saudi Arabia or any, you know, Yemen, Iraq, Iran. The term in Washington is the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yes, exactly. And that is exactly what we're talking about here. And so I find it, um, I, I thought back then that they were trying to combat racism and anti-Semitism. I think there's still some of that within this, but I also think they're embracing a different form of racism, not just against Palestinians, but also against Jews and Israel. And I think that's deeply problematic. All right. Well, that is a fantastic mic drop place to stop. And um, I wish we could go on, but I, I fear that we'll have you back to talk about another piece of this at some point, oh. part three of this episode. Um, but we're going to stop here. So Tara, thank you so much for joining me today. 
For our audience, thanks for listening and watching. And don't forget to follow Tara on the platform formerly known as Twitter and on Mastodon. You can find all of that on the show notes along with pretty much everything else we've discussed here. And finally, as always, I want to remind people, subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you won't miss any of our great content. And with that, that's where we're going to end it. So I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thank you, Tara Van Ho. And signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.